When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is the labor market too strong for the Fed? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Here with me this Jobs Friday is Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakly Advisory Group and the author of The Book Report. Hi, Peter. Hey, Maggie. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Well, it certainly seems like the stock market's answer to that question is a resounding yes, it is too tight. We saw a really sharp sell-off that kind of accelerated into the close, although it looks like we just picked up a little bit off the lows as we settle here. Uh, the, the Nasdaq had been down 4%. Looks like it's going to be around 3.8%. Uh, S&P 500 uh, looks like it recovered a little bit too, from down from over 3% to maybe something around 2.8%. But it was still a tough day for equities. The 10-year yield, um, not as much as a response there, maybe 3.89%. It looks like it's settling at. What did you make of the of the monthly jobs number? Well, the, the jobs number itself was was pretty much in line. It, it was the it was the drop in the unemployment rate that that sent the futures down the, the second it hit the tape, three and a half percent because of an increase in the household survey at the same time that the size of the labor market, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the size of the labor force actually shrunk because uh, people were anticipating uh, at best a flat unemployment rate or maybe even a tick up. But keep in mind the psychology of the markets the last couple of weeks. It's been sort of this, this desperate hope that there'd be some central bank that would see the slightest knees buckle or an economic data point that would be soft enough to get the Fed to back off. I mean, that, that, that's been the, the, the mentality of the markets here. And that certainly was a catalyst for the Monday-Tuesday rally because it came on the heels of last Friday when Lyle Brainerd sort of hinted. Uh, that she's focused on the risks to what they're doing. and But that was then quashed by a variety of different speakers from the Fed this week who used to be uber dovish and now all of a sudden are uber hawkish and all basically said we're going to continue to take uh, our sledgehammer and bang on inflation, uh, whether it hurts you or not. Uh, and then, of yeah. course, the unemployment rate going down instead of up was all the market needed. Plus, so this wasn't just a payroll thing and a rate thing. You also had the news from Advanced Micro last night reminding yes. everybody that the global economy is in a downturn and that technology is not immune. And that's what we have to look forward to over the next six, seven weeks is probably a minefield-filled earnings season. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Peter, because I think that didn't get as much attention as the jobs report and that those you know, starting to to drift through in the earnings and those warnings and the earnings hit that everyone's expecting that hasn't come yet. I mean, I think that's the, that's also a really, really big part of that. You know, it's really interesting on that point. Earlier today, right after the jobs number came out, I spoke with Julia Pollack. She's a chief economist at ZipRecruiter, um, which is a huge online job site. And I asked her about you know, where this strength is coming from in the labor market, especially when you have so many people worried about recession. Here's what she had to say to that. 
Well, during the pandemic, people uh, actually received more income than they uh, would have received otherwise, and they spent less. And uh, they also took advantage of once-in-a-lifetime conditions, like record low interest rates and mortgage rates, to improve the health of their balance sheets. So about two-thirds of U.S. mortgages right now are 4% or lower uh, monthly rate. Um, only 2% of mortgages are adjustable rate mortgages. And so even as the Fed is ratcheting up interest rates, the majority of U.S. households are not really feeling it. It's not as though their monthly costs of paying for their homes are going up in any way. Uh, and so they're still sitting on savings. They've also been uh, gaining jobs at such a healthy pace in recent months that they're getting more and more labor market income. And wages, you know, while obviously inflation has been eating away at those increases, many people have received very high wage increases. So what we're sort of seeing is uh, what some people are referring to as kind of an immaculate slowdown, where companies are reducing future headcount growth goals, but they're not cutting headcount. And so, yes, you know, we're, we're, we are seeing job openings come down. On Tuesday, we saw the biggest drop in JOLTS data in job openings outside of the pandemic. 1.1 million job openings vanished. Um, we've been seeing that for several months on our platform, that companies are becoming more cautious, more conservative. They are focusing on hiring to replace turnover, not so much to expand and grow anymore. Um, they're focusing on hiring essential staff, essential workers, those very, very important roles. They're not, you know, sort of willy-nilly uh, rolling out new product lines and, and new locations um, and, uh, you know, growing at all costs. They're being far more conservative uh, and, and their plans going forward are to harden themselves against the possibility of a downturn. That said, they're preparing for a downturn in sales and revenues that just doesn't seem to arrive. And so when push comes to shove, they're having to hire just to meet their immediate business needs. It was, it was so interesting to hear that. That's a little sneak peek, by the way, of the full interview that'll be releasing next week. So it's not out yet, but it's going to be, it's part of our make or break series on inflation and it will be available on the website. And I, I love trying to tease out because I feel like they have a kind of real time take on what's happening on the jobs market. Um, but Peter, you know, this raises things. So we've got earnings. We've got that earnings warning from AND. Maybe it's the first shoe to drop. I mean, yet we see all this tightness and we hear Julia talking about, listen, these companies need to hire. Like they, they've, you know, they've got to run their operations. They still feel that need to hire. Great question from Tabuena on Twitter, which speaks to this timing issue, I think. And they ask, interest rate increases take time to work, yet the market seems to extrapolate the state of the labor market. Is that right or wrong to think about? Peter, how are you thinking about that lag in policy? Well, it, it's it's right on that that it is a lagging figure, and uh, not just payrolls being a lagging figure in terms of gauging the state of the economy, but also the lagging nature of those interest rate increases. From uh, a labor market standpoint, you're an employer. You know, you, if your business slows, you don't just quickly fire people, especially if it took you years to develop that labor force. To, to your 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 needs, both skill wise and 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 uh, and body wise. So you're going to hold on to those employees, and you're going to maybe cut some other costs. Uh, you'll be a little bit more um, suspect on 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 further hiring, but you're going to keep tight on who you have. Mm -hmm. Only then, if you take that a step further, does if business starts to deteriorate 
and you run out of costs to cut, uh, then maybe you start to trim. So that still is to come. So basically, you really need the deeper economic downturn before you start to get the the the, the weakness in the, in the labor market. And while we definitely have seen uh, a notable slowing in the economy, uh, it's it's only leading to job cuts in certain areas. Now, if you're in the mortgage business, you know chances are you know your job is on the line here. Uh, if you are in tech, tech is tech has been the place where everyone invested a lot of money over the last five to 10 years. And a lot of these tech companies, whether it was an existing publicly traded one or a VC funded one, one that just went uh, public through a SPAC or an IPO, can just imagine all the hiring that took place in that industry. And it was a competition for, for, for workers. And it was, I need to get my hands on the best programmers and coders. And, and there was definitely in that a lot of over hiring. So that's where tech companies right now are beginning to limit hiring and they're probably cutting as well. But then on the other hand, you know, the local restaurant or hotel or certainly the airline industry can't find enough people. And I think that we, we've seen just an unusual economic backdrop where things are clearly slowing. Uh, the, the, the situation overseas is worse, but companies are, are keeping tight onto their workers, depending, of course, like I said, what industry you're in. And at the same time, uh, labor is gaining a bigger piece of the profit pie, and they have more leverage, and they're getting 5% type wage growth is what we saw in average hourly earnings on a year-to-year basis. Every single year, I'm sorry, every single month this year, we've seen a five-handle in, in wage growth. And while that's still well below the rate of inflation, it's, it's, it's sticky wage growth that I think could continue, maybe at a slightly slower pace, but something that I think can continue. And and that's why we pose the question, right? That speaks to why the Fed. It's not that you know that that they don't like a tight tight labor market. It's because of the sticky wage inflation, right? That's why this is such a closely watched area and so important to the Fed. Yeah, because the Fed thinks, okay, if wages are going to remain sticky, then companies are going to keep raising prices in in, in all and in, in order to offset that uh, that labor cost. I mean, if the the for you're a service company on average, two thirds of your expenses are labor. It's the biggest chunk. So that, that, that's why the Fed is, is focused on it. But it's just this complete back, um, you know, upside down thesis of the Fed is originally they wanted inflation because they think that higher inflation will lead to stronger wage growth. And now they want to cut down wage growth while inflation is still high. It, it's, it's, it's somewhat backwards. But yeah, that, that's what they focus on. But the, the bizarre thing about the Fed for all the PhDs they have and for uh, all the economic brain power they claim to have, they look at things in a very narrow lens. You know, all the extreme easing post-COVID or, or post the initiation of COVID was we need to get the jobs back that were lost due to the shutdowns. And we don't care about anything else. And we are going to burn every tree down to print as much money as we can and have rates at zero because we need those six to seven million jobs back before we do anything. Not caring about what the inflation story was or all the unintended consequences of doing what they did. Now it's the exact, it's, it's the opposite is we don't care about anything else. We need that inflation rate to come down. And that's yeah. it. That's the only lane they're driving down. Uh, the problem with that is now is their, 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 their front view window in driving down that road is actually looking at data that is getting older and mm-hmm. becoming more dated and is not as accurate. 
Uh, and therefore, it, it getting, it's getting to my growing and growing concern that while I am okay with the destination at which the Fed wants to take the Fed funds rate, call it four, four plus, because that would at least get a closer to uh, where inflation is, assuming inflation continues to fall. But it's the pace, the speed, the velocity at which they're hiking that now I have a huge problem with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it makes perfect sense. And you're right. We've got the, you know, now that we got all the jobs back or most of the jobs back, they're, they're, they're freaking out about what they intended to do. And, and it is, it is confusing. So I have another question, Peter, as well, that I would not only like to ask you, but I'd like everyone to weigh in on everyone listening. Um, we have a little poll up in the chat. Uh, you can go to Twitter uh, and tag Real Vision, use the hashtag AskRV, or go in our comment section. But in this whole conversation about what data they're looking at and this issue with wages, we were talking about this as, as the editorial team earlier today before the show. Can we really have sticky wage inflation when everyone knows that you can be fired at the drop of a hat? We saw that happen in COVID. That was one of the lessons out of COVID. Okay, this pandemic hit, bye, you're done. So if you have no job security, how can we really have sticky wage gains? Just because you have that raise now or you have that salary now, who's to say it won't disappear tomorrow? I mean, that is kind of collectively and anecdotally what a lot of us have seen, whether through ourselves or being a contract worker or, you know, from relatives that we have or from anyone. Like, there doesn't seem to be anything like job security anymore. So how does... The, how do those wages get structurally built into the system? Peter, if you can answer that. The rest of you, how, how do you feel about this? Do you feel like if you get a, way, a raise that it's going to be there for you? It's, it's sort of structurally now part of your life, or do you feel like it's fleeting? Peter, can you, can you weigh in on that? Like, how does that work? So, so, it's important. so to answer that question and to think about that, it's best to segment the labor force, okay? So let's take, let's take the, uh, the part of the labor force right now where you physically have to be at work, okay? Whether you are a, uh, uh, you, you work at a restaurant, where if you're gonna cook the food, you physically have to be there. You can't virtually cook the food. If you're a flight attendant, you can't virtually be the flight attendant and, 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 and walk down the aisle and serving us food and drink. You have to be there. Uh, if you need to clean uh, a healthcare facility, you need to physically be there. Those are the people that are seeing the stickiest wages. Now they don't, you know, unless you're in a union, um, they, they have contracts, so they're 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 sort of protected. But let's just say you don't, you, you, there's still demand for what you do because those businesses need you, mm. but there's less of you. That's where a lot of the the labor shortages have taken place. If you're a white collar worker, if you're working at a, at a at a law firm or in corporate America, for example. Yeah, maybe you have a contract or not, but your job is not safe. That's where the wage stickiness is less. Mm. So that's where that's where we're seeing sort of this bifurcated labor market where a certain area is going to have um, uh, leverage when it comes to those wage negotiations. And those are, call it in the BLS number, the non-supervisory workers. The supervisory workers, while they have sort of seniority, well, they actually have less leverage and they're going to see and they have seen smaller wage gains. Does one offset the other in the economy? 
Well, in the aggregate, I mean, just look at today. We, we saw a 5% year-over-year average hourly earnings. Now, that's a slight downtick. Uh, it's actually the lowest of the year, but it still is a, as a five handle. Uh, and yeah, that's the question is, is one going to offset the other? You know, we saw str- strong wage growth today in leisure and hospitality. We saw it also in trade and warehousing. Uh, I mean, transportation of goods is slowing, but if you have a warehouse facility that needs to store a lot of the excess inventory, well, you know, you're in demand uh, for uh, to, to be to be working at that warehouse. So uh, that that's how how I would sort of look at the labor market, and that sort of gets to you know we had this sort of two way economy for the last couple of years where everyone spent money on goods and not services, and we've we we flipped that around. It's just it, it's as opposed to like a regular recovery where things move in the same direction together, this was this is definitely different uh, in how it played out in the expan- expansion side and how it's now playing out in the slowdown side. Yeah, but this is where this is where understanding the labor market gets really tricky, right? Because I mean, there are just shortages of those people. So if you if if the Fed throws the economy into a recession because it's trying to stamp out wage inflation, companies will fire the people that they can replace. They'll fire the ones that you described in the other part of the economy. They're not going to get rid of the ones who work in the warehouse because they just simply need them. They can't get rid of them, right? So right. I don't. I, how does that achieve their their end? They they need them, and it took some. It took a long time to find them. You know, yeah. one of the interesting things about the labor the jobs data today. Is, you know, you have the establishment, establishment survey and you had the household survey. Within the household survey, about 380,000 jobs, all of the jobs in the household survey came from people with less than a high school diploma. Now, you'd think that most people, if they didn't go to college, they at least graduated high school. These were a lot of people that did not, and um, which I, I found pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, also... Um, older people as well. So I know I don't know whether that's because people, uh, the inflation story that we're in, uh, they need to, they need to get back to work or whatever. But, um, it's, it's interestingly enough, again, where the, the, the companies that need you to physically be in a place, uh, those were the, the, those where that, that is where the, the wage gains are more persistent. Yep, absolutely. And, and much of this reflected in what Julia is seeing as well. Um, you know, in terms of where that where that sort of bargaining power is on the part of labor. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, we have a question from, if you have a question for us, uh, drop it in the same place, chat, Twitter, or in the comments. Question from Dodging Durangos. Uh, given the lag in interest rates effect, does inflation still tend to have any residual upward momentum despite the Fed's action? Inflation spikes in the next reports, question mark. We have a big CPI report coming up next week, right? So in terms of the reporting, the inflation acceleration will continue to be on the services side. Now, services inflation is always persistent. It's just a matter of to what degree of persistency do we get? And I've said this before on the show, the 20 years leading into COVID, services inflation X energy averaged 2.8% per year. That's pretty consistent. 
Now we're going to continue to see in the BLS data uh, further acceleration in the rent component, even though in real life, rental uh, increases are slowing down. That gets to you know, the Fed driving down one side of the road and the, inf- and the inflation stats driving down the other side of the road at this point. On the, on the good side, we're definitely going to see further moderation, uh, but just a matter of to what degree. But keep in mind, even if you know, we're, seeing, we're seeing deceleration in certain commodity prices, we're seeing deceleration in transportation costs and used car prices, but just because we are, that doesn't immediately translate into a fall in prices broadly. You know, the, 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 the used car prices, they're falling on the wholesale level. It takes some time to work through the retail level. The fall in transportation costs are good for, for companies, but it takes some time for it to flow through. There was an article in the journal today about Costco. They're not, you know, they're seeing a decline in some of their costs, but they're not cutting prices just yet because they have they have a couple of years of massive price increases that they've had to absorb that they're just not going to give away by quickly cutting prices. Mm. And I've also said before, if, the, if my cost structure goes up 30% a year, I'm not raising prices to customers by 30%. Mm. So even if those price, those cost pressures start to recede, I still have margin left that I need to recapture that I'm going to continue to. So take Canagra, a stock we own, full disclosure, in their quarter that they just announced yesterday, they raised prices by 14% in the quarter. They lost volumes. So they made they had a good revenue number because of price at the expense of volumes. But they said, and this was their first quarter of their 2023 fiscal year, as the and, and, and in this quarter and the next quarter, they're still going to see double-digit price increases. It's only going to be the second half that things are going to slow down because the way that things recycle through the chain. Uh, so, but on a rate of change, inflation is definitely going to be slowing, but it's going to take time to work itself through the, uh, the data. Yeah. And, and again, I think that feeds into your worry, right? If that's what the Fed is focused on and they're kind of looking at backward looking indicators, they're going to, there's, that raises the risk of a policy overstep. Um, David on, on Twitter, talking to the question we put out to everyone, I can count on below inflation rate annual pay increases. I have to add another stream of income to get ahead in real terms. David, we feel you. And I feel like a lot of us um, struggle with that, which is why this is you know, interesting and frustrating, I think, for many to, to hear about a Fed engineering a recession to try to get a handle on inflation. Um, Peter, we have a question um, from uh, Golan Heights, less than 65% labor participation. What if five to ten percent come back? Do we see deflation, inflation? What would happen if we see an increase in the labor participation? Well, all we need is a few tenths, let alone you know five. Yeah, all we need is a few tenths more to come back to, to raise that percentage. And yeah, that would be a nice supply of labor, at least for a portion of the labor force that needs it. There's no question that would help, uh, and it would also. Um, certainly relieve the Fed's concern with the wage gains that we're seeing, because the Fed also pays attention to that participation rate uh, as a a gauge of of how tight or not the labor market is and what that means for wage gains. So it would be nice, but you wonder if it hasn't happened yet, why would it all of a sudden happen? And yeah, maybe some people do need to come back because of of inflation. Uh, Like I said earlier, we did see People over the age of 55, we saw a job gain there. Uh, maybe those that those baby boomers that retired need to, to, to supplement their fixed income because of, of inflation. 
it, it would relieve some of the, some of the uh, sort of shortages that uh, in certain areas of the labor market, as I keep saying, uh, need it. Uh, another company that I think is a good anecdote that we happen to own is ABM Industries. I bring them up because they have 125,000 employees. It's a very labor-intensive business with uh, almost 70% of their cost structure being labor. And the way that they termed uh, the situation in the labor market is that it's a battle for labor. Mm. It's a fight for labor. And even with the slowing economy, uh, there's still the need for, for bodies uh, to, to fill certain roles at the same time. Like I said, you know, tech companies are, are you know, overhired and, and, and they're trimming back. Right. It's funny because it's going to be such a flip. You know, it was a time when the industrial sector was where, you know, jobs were disposable and high tech. And, you know, if you're a computer programmer, um, you were in the driver's seat. Timothy from YouTube asking a great question. Peter, HYG is the next thing to drop or can treasuries be down 30 to 40 percent and junk 15 um, what, what, when does junk have its crash moment? Junk is outperforming treasuries and stock effing amazing. Timothy, a lot of people, <laughs> I think, agree with that sentiment and it, it has been unusual. How do you see that? Are they going to catch up? Is it imminent, Peter, that we see high yield reacting? Well, well I, I like to look at the triple C category and I, I've been checked in the last couple of days, but, uh, early this week and, and late last week, you know, that triple C yield to worst is now at 15%. Now, yield spreads have not widened to where it was in June, but you have that kind of cost of capital. Uh, it is inevitable that that yield spread is going to widen. The re one of the reasons why some of the high yield paper has not declined worse is, number one, the economy is still sort of hanging in there. Mm -hmm. So, but we have to, again, wonder how sustainable. And number two, the yield has been higher than treasuries and has sort of offset and mitigated some of the loss in the price of those bonds. So if your starting point in, in high yield was called 5 to 6% versus your starting point in a 10-year treasury going into the year of, I can't remember, maybe it was two, you have less, less cushion in terms of mitigating some of that capital loss with higher uh, coupons. Uh, now, from here, I do think that most of the move, and to his point, in both investment grade and, uh, and high yield has been the rate move and less so the spread. But if the economy does soften, you know that, that spread widening is going to contribute to further losses in high yield. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Peter, we had, um, we had uh, Diego Perea on yesterday, um, and and throughout our conversations, we, you know, we're we're looking hard at this macro environment. Um, we've got our series uh, make or break that's looking at geopolitics, China, um, energy, inflation, and there is a sense that we have some problems, and that while you see the real economy, as you just say, hanging in, that there are strains. And he Diego was concerned yesterday about leverage, hidden leverage in the system. Um, I know I've heard we've heard many people come on and talk about something breaking. 
Are you concerned and where do you think that would happen? What's your level of concern? You, you have to be concerned when but the Fed and other central banks, when they went from over-medicating us for the last two years to now conducting interest rate shock therapy. Mm. There is no doubt more accidents are going to happen. And whether it was the liability-driven investment situation in the UK, where UK pension funds got a little too cute with their, uh, with their search for yield, but some of that stuff exists here uh, in, in US pension land as well. And, and we'll see what happens there. So there are definitely going to be more accidents and but sometimes it doesn't have to be some sort of dramatic accident. Sometimes it can be a death by a thousand cuts that happen in the sense that we are in a higher cost of capital environment and it just makes it more difficult for businesses that didn't term out their, their, their interest expense or, or their, their debt exposure and have floating rate debt that are going to be crimped by a slowdown in the economy at the same time their interest expense has jumped. Now, that is, yeah, you can call it an accident, but that's not, you know, that's like uh, uh, an accident here, an accident in air. Now, in the cumulative sense, it adds up to a lot of problems, but mm. an accident like, you know, 2007, 2008, yeah, I'm sure there'll be some here and there, but not to the, to the extent. I'm more worried about just a global economy that is having to deal with the higher cost of living, a higher cost of doing business, and higher inflation, I'm sorry, higher interest rates on top of that, mm. that we're all gonna have to deal with. And the, in the aggregate, it slows growth, it slows activity, it compresses valuations, and it's something that we're just gonna have to grind through. JM on YouTube is asking who bought a bunker? And it, do, it does feel a little bit like that, but that's a really, really fantastic point, Peter. And I think that is going to be my takeaway from this conversation with you that, and I think it's echoes maybe what, what Brent was saying to us also that we, we've kind of conditioned to think there's going to be a blow up and, and, you know, the central banks are going to be forced to come to the rescue not because they feel like they've beat inflation down, but because it's so bad. But then that kind of clears the way for a V bounce in a way, doesn't it? Like, you know, uh, we get it out, we get it over with and, and it's painful, but then we can carry on. And what you seem to be describing is something that's much slower and almost just like a really long, nasty sideways slog where it just sucks. Everything, it's just hard. There's no earnings it's hard for the individual, it's hard for companies, it's hard for the global economy, and just no one does really well. Is, I, that, I think, is that what you're saying? Is yeah, it that I mean, Because when you think about where, where was the excess the last couple of years, where's the excess been the last 10 years? It's been in, in sovereign debt land. That's where the, 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 the biggest financial bubble in the history of bubbles was in sovereign bonds. Now, granted, there's been collateral bubbles all throughout the system. I mean, mm. when high yield in Europe was yielding 2%, obviously high yield became an oxymoron. Uh, so there were definitely excesses surrounding that, but it was really in the sovereign debt land. So we're going to now adjust to, uh, for, now, now when you want to talk about blowups, maybe it's, maybe it's governments, maybe it's the, the US Treasury that can't, that has a failed auction because the Fed's doing QT and foreigners buy less of our treasuries. 
and banks are buying less of our treasuries. And all of a sudden you have a rate, a, a rate gap higher in the tenure because we have a crappy or, or, or failed 10-year bond auction. Those were are some of the risks. For the private sector, I think it's I, I think it's going to be this really slow, painful adjustment to this higher cost of doing business environment that, yeah, it's going to create a level of bankruptcies for some and a slog for others. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the painful deleveraging, right? That's just yes. hard. We know that from, from, you know, in a way from what we had to go through with housing and the consumer balance sheet. So let's end on uh, Oliver's question. He was one of the first to post it, Oliver, from our site. Thank you, Oliver. And I think we're all thinking about this. Question for Peter. Other than stocking up on wood for my fireplace, what should I be doing from an investment point of view for this quarter to prepare for the first quarter of 2023? I would still be owning the precious metals. They've acted very well the last couple of weeks. Uh, still own energy stocks. I'd be buying the, the two-year treasury at a gift yield of 4.3%, which I think fully captures where the Fed will at most take the Fed funds rate uh, and maybe not even make it there. And I think that there are plenty of, of cheap stocks and opportunities that are being created here if you have a time horizon more than just a year or two. Fantastic. And I know that that's Peter's specialty is doing a deep dive into those companies and looking for for the value uh, and, and sort of hunting out what other people aren't seeing. Peter, it was so great to catch up with you. By the way, I can't forget to tell you the results of our poll, which was really interesting, just about 50-50. Now it says 51 no, 49% yes. So really split on that, which which to me is fascinating. And I think Peter probably speaks to your comment about it depends on what part of the labor market you're sitting in as to whether, you know, how you feel about wages and that issue of job security. But that was fantastic. Thank you all for taking the time to answer that. Um, you know, we're going to continue to to sort of deep dive into these issues because um, as my colleague Ash Bennington has said many times, this really is a macro moment and it's very important for us to sort of, you know, tease out all these different angles. And Peter, we appreciate you helping us do that today. Thanks, Maggie. Great uh, to talk with you. So I know a lot of you probably have more questions, especially when it comes to what to do um, and you know how to be thinking about this macro framework. Great news. Our Real Vision co-founder, Raul Powell, is going to be doing an Ask Me Anything session live in one hour's time right here on the Real Vision uh, finance channel on YouTube. Right here, one hour. So get yourself a snack. Come on back. Be ready with your questions and let's see if we can't navigate through this together. Thanks so much for your time today. Take care and good luck out there. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. First is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. Uh, home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which might pull changes happening and you fear it. You're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 